Pastor Chris's podcast. Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Return to Pharaoh and make your demands again. I have made him and his officials stubborn, so I can display my miraculous signs among them. I've also done it so you can tell your children and grandchildren about how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and about the signs I displayed among them, and so you will know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to submit to me? Let my people go so they can worship me. If you refuse, watch out, for tomorrow I will bring a swarm of locusts on your country. They will cover the land so that you won't be able to see the ground. They will devour what little is left of your crops after the hailstorm, including all the trees growing in the fields. They will overrun your palaces and homes of your officials and all the houses in Egypt. Never in the history of Egypt have your ancestors seen a plague like this one. And with that, Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials now came to Pharaoh and appealed to him, How long will you let this man hold us hostage? Let the men go to worship the Lord their God. Don't you realize that Egypt lies in ruins? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. All right, he told them, go and worship the Lord your God. But who exactly will be going with you? Moses replied, we will all go, young and old, our sons and daughters, and our flocks and herds. We must all join together in celebrating a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh retorted, the Lord will certainly need to be with you if I let you take your little one. I can see through your evil plan. Never. Only the men may go and worship the Lord, since that is what you requested. And Pharaoh threw them out of the palace. Then the Lord said to Moses, Raise your hand over the land of Egypt to bring on the locusts. Let them cover the land and devour every plant that survived the hailstorm. So Moses raised his staff over Egypt and the Lord caused an east wind to blow over the land all day and through the night. When morning arrived, the east wind had brought the locusts, and the locusts swarmed over the whole land of Egypt, settling in dense swarms from one end of the country to the other. It was the worst locust plague in Egyptian history, and there has never been another one like it. For the locusts covered the whole country and darkened the land. They devoured every plant in the field and all the fruit on the trees that had survived the hailstorm. Not a single leaf was left on the trees and plants throughout the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron. I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you, he confessed. Forgive my sin just this once and plead with the Lord your God to take away this death from me. So Moses left Pharaoh's court and pleaded with the Lord. The Lord responded by shifting the wind, and the strong west wind blew the locust into the Red Sea. Not a single locust remained in all the land of Egypt. 
But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart again, and he refused to let the people go. Are you remembering the, the plagues of the Egypt as we go down the list? We are now on the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. And um, the other day, Kelly um, said, hey, there's this documentary on ancient Egypt. We should watch it together. And as soon as I picked my jaw up off the ground, because she had suggested it instead of me, we watched it together. And as we're going through that, it was very interesting. And one little thing jumped out at me and just grabbed my attention. There was this one little, they were going through looking at this, they were excavating this tomb. And this little thing popped up about a game that they were playing. You know, my family likes to play games, especially around the holidays and everybody kind of gathers around the house and we'll play something like Monopoly or, you know, Clue or something like that. Well, they had this game and um, it's called Senate. And I Googled it and looked it up and found out that you can buy, still play Senate today. This that was played thousands of years ago and I found it on Amazon. I said, I'm going to get that because family's getting ready to come home. Maybe we can, we can play it. It looks like an interesting game and it was just cool. It's got a little drawer and you can put all the little pieces inside it so it keeps it all organized. And I thought, that's pretty cool. You know, um, it was neat to me to think of people thousands of years ago sitting around playing games. <laughs> they're, they're people like us, very different from us in many ways, but in other ways, very similar to us. All playing, playing those little games, maybe sitting around their living room playing a game. You know, one of the marks of a successful culture, at least by worldly standards, is the ability to enjoy entertainment and pleasurable distractions. Do you realize, you know, we live in America, one of the, one of the, the, the most blessed countries in the world. And so we might not realize, we might take it for granted, but do you know that 99% of the world will never, ever get to go to Disneyland? Um, 99% of the world does not have the ability to take a vacation to go to the beach on the summertime. Uh, they might not even be able to go to Dollywood or whatever the Dollywood where they live is. You know, There's, they just, you know, 99% of the world is too busy just trying to survive. They don't have time. They don't have the extra spending cash or the extra time or resources to just take a break and do so many of the things that we do that we take for granted. That's just the situation. Since we live in this country, we think everybody gets to do those kinds of things. But in most places in the world, they don't. But we are blessed to have the surplus time and resources to stop and just enjoy life. And that's what God wanted. In the beginning, when he created humanity, he said, remember to observe the Sabbath day. And he said, on that day, no one in your household may do any work. Six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested because he wanted people to be able to take time to just rest and enjoy life. Now, I've interpreted that all different kinds of ways through the centuries. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees had taken a very good blessing God had given to people, and they had turned it into this legalistic, religious burden that weighed people down, that people couldn't even, couldn't even enjoy. 
of this regulation that they had. They had made the Sabbath into such a burden that, that you couldn't walk but so many steps on the Sabbath day. They even said you could only have a certain number of tacks in your sandals. Because if you had too many, you considered to be carrying a load on the Sabbath day, which would be considered work. So they had taken something very generous and a blessing that God had given and turned it into a burden. And then, of course, Jesus came along. And what was he always getting in trouble for with the Pharisees? Violating their rules about the Sabbath. And Jesus said this. He said, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Jesus knew because Jesus is God. He knew what it was all about. He knew that God gave us the command to rest on the Sabbath because it is one of the best gifts that God could give. To give people the ability to rest is a great blessing. The Egyptians, because of their wealth, their power as an empire, they had the ability to rest and to to do things that were just simply for the sake of pleasure. They had time to invent games like this so that they could play. And they probably had all different other kinds of games. And I bet they even had sporting events and competitions that they could just give themselves to because they had the time to do it. Do you remember the first time you heard that strange sound that you hear in the trees? It usually comes... It's a sound that stores outside as a buzzing sound and it grows louder and louder and louder. And then it seems to sort of shift over to the other side of the universe and begins buzzing in the trees. It's, it's that sound. And I remember the first time that I heard that sound outside going back and forth. And I asked my mom, what is that? As a little kid, I said, what is that? And she said, that's locust in the trees. And I just thought that that was what it was. It wasn't until I grew up and became an adult that I learned that it's not really cicadas. You know what I'm talking about? That sound. sound. Some people think it's a terrible sound and it drives them batty, but I kind of like it. I think it's a really neat sound, but it's not locusts. It's cicadas. But my mom wasn't that far off when she said that to me as a child. Because cicadas are cousins to crickets, and crickets are cousins cousins with katydids, and katydids are cousins with grasshoppers. All of the different insects are cousins. They're similar. Now, the first time I saw one of those dead cicadas on the ground, it don't they look they look creepy. And I never thought of a grasshopper when I looked at it. But when you look at it close, you can sort of see how the different parts are similar in some ways, the way the legs are shaped and all of that kind of thing. Well, when I was in Cub Scouts as a kid, we went on the, uh, a little camping trip, went to this camp, and um, they said, they told us one morning, we're going to play a game tonight. So today we want you all to find a critter and bring a critter to the campfire tonight, and we're going to play a game. And so we're going to have a race to see which critter can win. So we found, I found with my dad, a frog. And I thought I had this thing nailed because, you know, frogs are fast. They can hop and run and run and run. Well, we brought a 
all the critters, and they had drawn this big circle in the ground, and we put all the critters in the center of the circle, and I thought, I've got this with the frog for sure. But some kid had brought a grasshopper, and that grasshopper, he made one jump, and then he spread his wings, and he flew off somewhere into the woods, never to be seen again. And in one move, that grasshopper beat all of the other critters in the circle. Locusts are a swarming phase of certain forms or certain kinds of grasshoppers. Now, grasshoppers normally live all by themselves. They're not like bees. They're not like ants, which are social, right? Grasshoppers are usually by themselves. But sometimes under certain circumstances, grasshoppers will start to multiply. Certain kinds of grasshoppers will start to multiply and they will change their behavior and habits and they will become social insects that stick together. And they will join with other grasshoppers, other locusts, and they will create these huge swarms. According to National Geographic, a desert locust swarm can cover 460 square miles and can pack between 40 to 80 million locusts into one square mile. Now, that's one square mile. If you multiply that out to 460, that comes to somewhere between 18 to 36 billion locusts. To put that in perspective, a typical swarm of desert cover the entire county of Whitfield and almost half of Murray County. That's how big a typical desert swarm of locusts would be. And each locust can eat its own weight in vegetation in a single day. A swarm of locusts can typically consume about 423 million pounds of vegetation in one day. How much corn would that be (laughs) in these parts? And scripture tells us the swarm that... Egypt was the worst they had ever experienced in their recorded history. Now imagine that. So here is Egypt, who's already been through seven plagues. And Moses comes and says, look, you know, you're already devastated. Let the people go or else God is going to send a swarm of locusts to eat everything that you got left. And it's no wonder that Pharaoh and his officials Start trying to negotiate. I said, all right, look, hold on, hold on. Before you go doing that, you said, wanted to go. And Moses says, everyone, the men, the women, the children, the animals is going. And Pharaoh, I just don't get, he's crazy. <laughs> God already done all this stuff to him. And he has the gall to say, ah, only the men can go. Everybody else has got to stay here. And then he kicks Moses and Aaron out of the palace. Now, there's an important principle that we need to learn from this story. God would not accept anything from Egypt except absolute, unconditional surrender. And the same is true for you and for me. Because a lot of times we want to try to be fair and start bargaining with God. We want, you can have this part of my life, but I'm going to keep this part for myself. And God has never been one 
to bargain like that. God will only accept unconditional surrender. And the scripture actually tells us, it says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In the meantime, he's giving us the opportunity to make that choice ourselves. And when we do, when we bow before him and confess him as Lord, he forgives us of our sins and he picks us up off of the ground and he makes us royalty in his kingdom and he grants us eternal life. But if we never accept that in this lifetime, you can be sure that one day you will find yourself face to face with him and you will bow and you will confess that he is Lord, but it will be on much, much worse terms. And I pray you won't wait that long. Well, was an empire with great wealth and great power, but they also were an empire with thousands of idols and false gods. But Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Bible, the one true God, sent 10 plagues on Egypt to expose the impotence of all of Egypt's false gods. So that all nations and all generations would know that there is only one God, the Lord. They worshipped idols in Egypt and many times in ancient civilizations. But we have idols today as well, even in our modern times. You see, people were created by God to worship. And there's just no way to get around it. We are going to worship. We're going to worship something. Some people say, well, I don't believe in God. I'm not going to, I don't worship. I don't worship anything. Well, it's not true. You're going to worship something. The only, if trying not to worship something is like trying not to breathe. (laughs) You just can't do it. And if you don't worship the one true God, you will worship something. We'll worship money or power or our country, or our politicians, or people we look up to, or maybe we'll even worship ourselves. But we're going to worship something. And one of the idols that many people worship today is pleasure and entertainment. Now, as I said before, God wants us to have time to rest and enjoy life, He wants us to have pleasure. He commanded us to rest on the Sabbath day. God wants us to enjoy life. You know, just like a good father and a good mother wants their kids to have a good time and to enjoy life. God wants that for us too. The Sabbath was not originally some stiff religious regulation. It was God telling his children, you got to slow down and take some time to stop and smell the roses. Enjoy life. I made you to enjoy it. And I made all of this for you to enjoy it. And work can become an idol. But for some people, the of pleasure can become an idol too. And many in our time, in our day and age, bow down and worship the idol of hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure and sensual self-indulgence. There's nothing wrong with enjoying life. God wants us to enjoy life. But anytime you take something that's good and you treat it like God, 
treating it as more important than God, letting it absorb your heart and imagination more than God, and expecting it to give you what only God can give. Anytime you do that, you're worshiping an idol. And idols always fail us. They actually hurt us. We all want to be happy. We want to enjoy life. But the irony is, the one thing that guarantees you will not be happy and enjoy life is if you spend all your time and all your resources and all that you've got in the pursuit of pleasure. That won't lead to pleasure. You may find some fabricated sense of happiness. Other people may even look at you from the outside. They might see your Facebook post and they might envy you and your happiness. But that's only because they are looking at you from the outside. They're seeing the image that you portray, but they can't see how unhappy you are on the inside. With hedonism, all your happiness is simply an empty, false idol. As empty and false as the idols of Egypt. In contrast to hedonism, the two most effective ways to find the greatest real pleasure in life are number one, to be thankful for what you already have, and number two, to help others. And that seems actually countercultural to what you might think. Let's look at the first one be thankful. Being grateful is not just a a polite thing to do. When we are thankful, it actually increases our capacity to enjoy our blessings. You see, when we are unhappy, we often think that the solution is to get more things or more experiences that will make us happy. But that is rarely the real solution. Most often, after we get the things or experience that we wanted so bad, the satisfaction that they give goes away so quickly. It's like the morning fog blowing off as the sun comes up. And all we can think about then is what? The next thing that we've got to have or got to do. And so the solution is to learn to be truly thankful for what we have. Our thankfulness magnifies the pleasure we receive from the things and experiences we have at the moment. Amy, I loved your, your challenge last Sunday. Uh, every day we, we, uh, we tell something for which we are thankful. That's a great thing to do. It's a great habit, especially as we lead up to Thanksgiving, but it's a great thing to do every day. Don't stop after Thanksgiving. Keep on going. Buy yourself a notebook. And, uh, and, and every day, just as you think of it, write down things you're thankful for. Or get yourself a, a mason jar and some slips of paper. Write down the things you're thankful for and stuff them in the jar. And every now and then, take out your notebook and read it. Or dump all the stuff out of the, the jar and just pull out the little slips of paper. And read all of the things you're thankful for. And see how much joy it brings to you. Do that especially when you're feeling down and depressed. Because, you know, when you start reminding yourself of all the things for which you're thankful, all of a sudden... 
you're not so worried about the things that are bothering you anymore. Be thankful. Another great way to experience true and lasting pleasure, a pleasure that soaks down deep into your soul, is to help other people. Nothing brings joy like helping someone. Of course, we're getting closer and closer to Christmas now. And what is, it that, what is the cliche that we always say? It is better to give than... It's a cliche, but it's true. You know, think about that time when you gave the most fabulous gift to someone else and you just could. We're so excited about it. You found the perfect gift and you couldn't wait to give it. And then they open the gift and they, the smile comes on their face. How much joy that brings to you. And when you help someone that really needs help and you have just what they need and you're able to go in there and give them a hand, it just brings such joy down deep in your soul. Scientific studies show that helping others boosts happiness. It increases life satisfaction, provides a sense of meaning, increases feelings of competence, improves our mood, and reduces stress. It helps take our mind off our troubles too. Don't we need a little bit of that right now? We ought to be helping a lot of people right now because it seems like there's a lot of troubles that we're all worried about. That's good news because there will be a wave of outreach and mission going on in the community. And if it does, we'll be so full of joy. But here's the thing. If you're going to help others, it really matters how you do it. The, the attitude with what you do. Don't look at helping others as a burden that you've got to bear. Carrying a heavy load doesn't sound like much fun, and it isn't. So when you help others, you have to help them with a cheerful heart. The scripture says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And we usually say that in reference to giving an offering or taking up a collection. But think about it in terms of helping other people. If you're helping other people because it's a duty that you must fulfill, some religious obligation, well, that's no fun and it doesn't bring any joy. But if you do it with a cheerful heart, it makes all the difference in the world. You don't have to help someone in order to make God love you. God already loves you. He loves you so much he gave his life for you on the cross. Therefore... Think about how much he loves you and what he's done for you. And now turn around and go out and help someone else. And you may find it is the most fun you have ever had. We have the privilege today of sharing the sacrament of Holy Communion. It reminds us how much God loved us. For Christ left the glory of heaven to come down to this broken world help us. Think about that. You know, last week we had homecoming and, and Reverend Haney spoke about the glory of heaven. And we're always looking forward to one day we get to go to heaven with the most glorious place. And there's no more pain and no more suffering and no more death. Jesus left that to come here. 
to hear us arguing and bickering and fighting and being mean to each other. And ultimately, he came down here so we could crucify him. Woohoo! That's great. That's how much he loved us. And communion reminds us of that. And so Holy Communion does three things that can help us find joy in this life. It reminds us that God helped us. Not because we deserved it, but because we desperately need it. And he chose to do it. Number two, it offers us the opportunity to be. And what does being thankful do? It increases your capacity to experience joy. So as we do this today, we are, we are reminded that God helps us and that we have the opportunity to be thankful. And number three, it empowers us to go out and to help others, just as Christ helped us. As we take the bread and the wine, the Holy Spirit gives us God's grace, which empowers us to do what Christ wants us to do. On the night that Christ gave himself up for us, he shared the last meal with his disciples. And that meal showed them what he was about to do for them and what he has done for us. And so it is a memorial for us today of his gracious gift and his presence with us here now. For on that night, he took the bread And he raised it to heaven and he asked the Lord to bless it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take and eat from this, all of you. This is my body, which is given for you. And likewise, after the meal, he took the cup and he asked the Lord to bless it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this bread and this wine that remind us of his gift. We are thankful, O Lord. And so we ask that you pour out your Holy Spirit on these elements and on us, that this bread and wine might be the body and blood of Christ and that we might be the body of Christ redeemed by his blood to go out and to serve in his name. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.